Most of you know that my, uh, my oldest is, is a college student, and he's uh, heading into his 18th year here pretty soon. And so the memories that I have of him as a kid when he actually wants to spend time with me, you know, I, I just hold on to those, and I, I cherish those. And one of the memories that I, I just cherish um, with him um, that I'll never forget, I'll take to my grave, and I'll just call it forward and smile over and over again is, is the time in which him and I got to build sandcastles on the, on the beach of Del Mar. Actually, it was just a sandcastle, not sandcastles. Uh, and we, when we built the sandcastle together, um, side by side, getting sunburned on our backs, um, it wasn't with those little sissy tools, you know, like the little tiny buckets and the little plastic shovels that are no bigger than a thimble, you know. No, we had metal shovels out there in the middle of Del Mar Beach, and we were digging. And um, when we made the walls of, of this sandcastle, they, they weren't puny walls. They were like, uh, I don't know, probably two feet high. Um, people actually stopped on the beach just to look at what we were doing. I'm not sure it was even legal to take those, those shovels out there and build this thing. But, you know, we built it close enough to the ocean so that when, um, so that when a kind of a big wave or a big set would come in, the, the, the waves would actually come up and hit the castle. Because if you have kids or sons, you know, you have to have a plot in mind when you're building something. There always has to be an enemy and there has to be a fight. Even if my son's playing with Barbie dolls, it still has to be a fight. So we built it close enough to the ocean, and we pretended that the mighty Pacific Ocean and its waves were the, like the, the evil hordes that were laying siege to our, our castle. So we built this thing. We built uh, not just big walls that were like two feet thick, but we had, we had the, the towers, and we had a little keep, and then we made little houses for the people that the walls were supposed to protect. And every time the waves would come in, man, we were just like there fortifying and getting our castle felt good. And we held our own for like three or, three or four hours as the, as the tide started to come up. And well, it got late, as you can imagine, and, and our time of play uh, came to an end. And we had to leave our mighty fortress to fend for itself against the mighty Pacific. And the next day, we came down to the beach, and there wasn't so much as a divot in the sand, not even a little tiny mound where our enormous you know, structure sat. It was completely and utterly wiped clean. My son couldn't believe it. It's gone. (laughs) Hello, it's a sandcastle, and that's the Pacific Ocean. And uh, I have uh, always held that in my mind, not just as a good memory, but a reminder of how quickly um, life comes to an end and how transient everything we are and do is in and of itself. Reminds me of Psalm 103, where it says, As for man us. His days are like grass, like the California grass, green one day, brown the next day. Flourishes like a flower of the field, and a wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. There's no trace or memory of the grass. There's no trace or memory of our our being here. That's transience of human existence. Within five or six generations, most of us won't leave a divot in the ground or a, or a mound in terms of who we were in and of ourselves. It's not only true of our lives, it's true of our achievements as, as well. Paul said that everything we see is transient. Everything. Everything comes and everything goes. Comes, goes. It lives, it dies. Including all of our achievements that we that we toil over, we expend blood, sweat, and tears trying to build something, only as he, he tells us to have it decay. And pretty soon nobody will know it existed. Someday, the great company Apple will cease to exist, 
and no one's going to remember it. I remember um, along those same lines, and this figures into to the text of this morning, um, touring the ancient city of Ephesus in Turkey. And the tour guide took us to this place where the temple to Artemis was built. That is the temple to Diana. And it was said to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Like, apparently, it was just, like, amazing. The only thing left there, you know, I was kind of excited. when she said, yeah, we're going to go see the Temple of Diana. I was expecting something. But the only thing that was there was a single pillar with a bird nest on top. The only thing that remained of this seventh wonder of the ancient world was simply one single pillar with a bird nest on top. That's it. Kind of wiped clean. What I want to say after that rather depressing introduction is that Jesus came to change that. Jesus came to, to begin something that would last through eternity. Um, and it's stated in different ways in the, in the New Testament, um, ways of looking at kind of the same thing. He came to begin a new creation is one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is he came to initiate and found a kingdom. It's another way of looking at it. Or this third way, which Paul gets at in Ephesians chapter 2, is that he came to lay a foundation stone for a brand new eternal temple. A temple that wouldn't be like the temple of Artemis left with only one pillar, but a temple that would last forever. This is how he explains it in Ephesians 2, which is the foundation of Ephesians 4. Beginning in verse 17, Paul writes, And he, that is Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Now, if you were to kind of rewind earlier in the chapter, you would see that this peace is rooted and grounded in the fact that he gave his life for us. That by his blood, he's created peace vertically with God, and he's created peace, or at least the potential of realizing that peace between people horizontally. That's the peace he's talking about. Verse, verse 18, For through him we both, Gentiles and Jews, have access to one spirit to the Father. Some nice little Trinitarian Father-Son spirit there in verse 18. Access to the Father through the Spirit on the basis of the Son. Verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, with the Jewish people who have received the promises and members of the household of God. And here's the, the construction terminology, the temple terminology. He says, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also, speaking to the non-Jewish believers, in him you too are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, and not into a separate dwelling place, but into the same thing. So there's this like picture that's emerging that God is in the process, the Father through the work of the Son, by the Spirit, that's the last part, built by the Spirit, is, is in the process of constructing this massive, magnificent, cathedral-like temple made not of stone or made with hands, but made of living stones, which is you and me. And he has been building this eternal temple slash cathedral, this magnificent edifice in which he himself dwells through the generations. And someday, that magnificent temple will become reality to our eyes and we will see it physically. And it will be complete and magnificent. 
They built temples to magnify or create a sense of, of awe of the deity that indwelled it. And God of all um, things to choose in which he would show his magnificence chose you and me as the cathedral, as the temple. And that's a temple that will stand forever and ever through every epoch of time. That's what the Lord is building. Jesus is the cornerstone, the starting place. He is the one uh, to whom or through whom, in whom all of those stones are joined. And as they are joined, they grow. The, the cathedral grows by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. Christ, apostles, and prophets as the foundation. And it's been being built through the centuries. And here we are in 2000. 2014, almost 2015, and it's, it's our turn. He's building his temple all over the world. Now, that's the foundation. That's what God is doing. Chapter 2 tells us that this is God's work, God's construction project, which gives us confidence that it's going to come to completion. He's passionate about it. It will succeed. He'll build it. He'll complete it, and it'll be magnificent. His, his work, which is the foundation of chapter 4, where Paul turns a corner, and he is going to tell us about our part in this process. That is, God, by his spirit, uses his people, uses us to build his temple. We are temple builders. That's our part. And what we should be investing our lives in if we want to see an eternal return. He writes this, beginning in verse 11 and 12. These are our verses. And Jesus, he's the subject, if you go back, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, or if we're going to go back to the temple metaphor, to build up the temple. You'll notice in these two verses that there are two groups of people, one group in verse 11 and another group in verse 12, both of which have distinctive but overlapping func functions. The group in verse 11 these four categories of leadership of apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers are supposed to equip group number two, that is the saints, in verse 12. Verse 11, we, we see the equippers. In verse 12, we see the equippees. Verse 11, there are categories of leadership. And verse 12, the function of the laity. A laity is just a word for anyone who believes in Christ and is or has the Spirit of God within them. So you have the equippers, the leaders, and you have the ministers as the body. Two related but distinct functions. And as they function correctly, if they're functioning correctly, and the parts are working the way they should in terms of leadership and laity, then the church continues to grow and thrive, and, and people experience the peace that passes understanding, and people experience the power of God's Spirit healing their souls as they continue to do what God has blessed them to do. So let me take the one side of it and then the other side of it. That is the, the function of leadership is to equip the saints for ministry. What exactly does that mean? Because I, in terms of my calling, am a part of verse 11. I'm a shepherd teacher. And I would like to know and need to know what exactly does it mean for me to equip? And does it mean handing out Bibles and giving people colored pencils and pocket protectors so that people can do Bible study? Is that what I'm supposed to do to equip God's people? Give them tablets with all kinds of Bible software on it? Here, is that what it means to equip? It's an important um, question um, in terms of what are we supposed to be doing? What is the leadership of a church supposed to be doing for its people? 
Let me say that the primary function and primary way by which we equip group number one, equip group number two, is this. The function of gospel leadership is to disciple people, that is the saints, in, in the content and also the application of the gospel. Or to personalize this, my primary function as an elder or a pastor is to teach people, disciple people in both the content and its application um, with regards to the gospel. That's his job. Now, where do I get that and what do I base that on? Uh, a number of things, but let me just give you two. You'll notice that every, every category here of apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, in addition to the fact that they, they function as leaders, they have something else in common. Every one of these different gift functions has as its common denominator communication. They're all communicators. That is, they're taking the content of the truth of the gospel centered in Jesus, centered in the person of Jesus, everything that he's done on our behalf to make a, our future bright and, and perfect and, 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 and to teach that to other people. That's, that's the gospel. In addition to its application of how we see each other, how we see ourselves. Do we see ourselves primarily as sinner? Do we see ourselves as saint who struggles with sin? That's an application of the gospel. They were all communicators. They were supposed to equip people to understand the gospel. That's evidence number one. Number two is later on, after verse 12, he talks about the purpose for the building up, and it is to bring everybody to a place of complete completion and unity and faith and knowledge, knowledge of the truth. God's people have to know, like, like the good news and how it applies to every area of, area of life, including marriage and parenting. And that's the primary function of, of leadership. Now, why is that important? Like, what, what's the big deal? And John Stott once said, and he's not a guy who's given to overstatement. He was a scholar, British scholar, who just recently passed away. He said that the teaching, the impartation of the gospel within the church, the good news and all of its applications, is the sine qua non, or that one absolute that the church desperately needs and which the church is so easy to let go of. This truth. And let me tell you why I think this is the primary function of church leadership, is to be about the job of discipling people in the content and also the application of the gospel. Because it is for God's people, for the temple, it is the power of God unto salvation. It has the power to repair relationships as I opened. It has the power to open the human heart in ways that compel us, not just to trust Christ more and love Christ more, but stirs us up to love and good works. That is, it is the, it is the energy heart of, of the church, this thing called the gospel. And, and as it saturates, as it saturates not just the mind or the cerebrum, the head, that's a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge here, but as it saturates here, here, the cells of our life and our relationships, then it has this explosive effect. It actually motivates us 
to go and do the work of the ministry, to, to bear up and self-sacrifice for each other because we have this, this center, this, this powerhouse called the gospel at the heart of the church. And it works that way. And it's the lack of belief that it works that way that causes people oftentimes to say, let's put the gospel over here and let's get practical and talk about something without Jesus in it. It's, it's power. It's which is why when Jesus wants to address marriage, he just doesn't talk about 12 practical steps to have a, having a happy marriage. He puts Jesus right in the middle of it. It's like, you want to know what it's like to be married husband? Then, then love your wife the way Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, he brings the gospel to bear upon everything. It's the power center. And I, I've seen it work in my own life that way. When I... When, when my heart is not being filled with, with, with the good news of what Jesus has done in all of its enormity, I dry out. And all of my motivation to preach, teach, or, or serve my wife dries up too. But the opposite also happens. And that is, you know, when, I'm, when, when my, the eyes of my heart are filled with the amazing wonders of God's grace, past, present, and future, it's easy to get on my knees and serve my wife. I actually... I'm passionate to preach and teach. And maybe you've seen that in other people's lives as well. They, like, they, they get beyond the mere cognitive understanding of, well, Jesus died for me and he rose and he's coming again. To, he died for me. He rose for me. And someday he's going to call my name and I'm going to rise out of the ground and see the people and the Jesus that I love. That when people get that, it just compels. It's powerful. It changes life. Not just at the beginning, but in the middle and the end. Maybe a, if what I says, I'm about to say offends you, then forgive me. Well, don't forgive me. You can do with it what you want. You can talk to me afterwards. Oftentimes we find there are people who, who are inactive in their Christian walk. And sometimes I hear as a pastor that, um, well, I, I don't have a place to serve. Now, that may, in one sense, be true, like to do the work of ministry. And certainly part of leadership is to provide user-friendly avenues in which people can get involved. It's my opinion, however, that the bigger problem is not one of organization. The bigger problem is one of motivation. That is, you find a person who comes to mind right now is, is uh, Dennis Opalentissima. Some of you know him. He preached two weeks ago. That guy got the gospel, and you know what? You can't keep him down. You can't. Why? Because he gets it person who gets it is like ready and waiting, engine going, saying, I want to go. And then the, the gas tank's full, and my foot wants to go on the pedal. That's a motivational issue. And you look in the Gospels, what motivated people almost instantaneously to do amazing things was simply that they came in contact with Jesus, and they understood the good news of the kingdom. Zac- Zacchaeus, you know, the Sunday school song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Remember that song? If you don't, I just embarrass myself. <laughs> Not to mention, we little man isn't exactly politically correct anymore. You have to say vertically challenged little man. But uh, 
Anyway, we heard Jesus is coming into town. This is Luke chapter 19, and, and he can't see because he's vertically challenged. And so he climbs a tree. Everybody's waiting to see Jesus, and he's a tax collector, which means he's culturally and socially despised, an outcast, thought less of. Maybe how you feel about the IRS. I don't know. And he's up in the tree, wants to see Jesus, and the unthinkable happens. For anybody who hasn't gotten so used to the story to, to, to experience and feel the amazing grace of the moment where Jesus stops the processional, and he points him out, calls him by name. He says, come down out of the tree. I'm coming to your house today, and we're going to have a party. And, and Zacchaeus comes down. He's full of joy. He invites all of his friends over. The text actually tells us that Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. He knows in this moment, the, the despised man, no doubt struggling with his own sense of shame, is accepted by Jesus, loved by Jesus. And you know what it says? He was compelled in that moment to be willing to both restore or make restitution for anybody he'd ripped off or sell his stuff and give to the poor. It's just, that's what it does to the heart. It's just spontaneous motivation and compulsion to move. That's why leadership functions primarily to get that into the minds and the hearts of the people. Or take the demoniac of, of, in the Gospel of Mark um, who lives in the country of the Gerizines. It said there were a thousand demons possessing this man. He could break chains and he hurt himself and he hurt other people. Nobody could do anything to help this man. But Jesus and the power of his name comes along. And the demons are like, get away from us, Jesus, you holy one. Do not cast us into outer darkness. And what does Jesus do? He says, leave. And this man that has been oppressed and, and, and possessed for who knows how long, kneeling before Jesus, comes to his right mind, healed. And in that moment, or right after that moment where he encountered the power of, of Jesus and the gospel, it says that he went through the whole Decapolis, ten cities, proclaiming Jesus. That's ironic. Demon-possessed man becomes joyful preacher of Jesus. Where did he get the motivation to do it? There was no lingering, ongoing strains of just as I am being sung. There were no motivational videos being, be, being played for people to melt their hearts. It's just like encounter the goodness and the gospel of Jesus and boom! That's why it has to be at the center where there's no power in the church, the gospel is not saturating it. And I'm not talking, again, about just the mind, but the mind, the heart, the life, the relationships. Maybe that gives you a reason, an understanding as to why the primary function of gospel leadership in a church is to disciple people in the content and application of the gospel. That's the center. That's the engine. But then there's the other side of the verse. To equip the saints, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. If the primary function, not the only function, but the primary function of leadership in the church is to communicate the gospel, the content, and the application of it to the body, then the primary function of being a Christian is for the work of ministry, the work of service to Christ and his people. And for those who have been influenced by a Catholic background, let me just make clear once again that when it says the saints, it's not talking about a few people who have done some miraculous things. Any and everybody who has believed in Christ with a genuine faith, who has received 
the proclamation that you are holy and righteous on the basis of your faith because Jesus gave you his is holy and you are a saint, which means this applies to absolutely everybody in this room if you have a genuine faith in Jesus. Which means the burden of what we might call person-to-person ministry, the caring and the foot washing, and I use that figuratively, and, and, and the, the sharing of personal wisdom and, and coming along, some, along somebody who's sick or, or needs a meal or, or needs to be visited or needs a word of encouragement and needs to just be walked beside through a difficult time or a difficult loss. That is a ministry that all of us in here share. Every single Christian is called to that kind of service. And as we do it, the temple is being strengthened and built. That is, that is our job as a Christian. I always, well, I don't say always, I, I think of myself as having two hats as a pastor. I have a pastor hat where my primary function is to disciple people in the content and application of the gospel. But I also wear this other hat, which everybody wears, which is the hat of being a Christian. A simple Christian, which means I'm supposed to love people that God brings me in contact with in the way that they need, in the same way that you wear this hat, and you are called to be the ministering arm and hand and foot of Jesus wherever God has placed you. But that ministry falls on the body as a whole, not on just a few. This, by the way, these verses, two verses, 11 and 12, if the church took them to heart, it would be a church-changing situation. These verses are church-changers. In the traditional way of thinking, which unfortunately kind of continues to exist, echo, is that ministry and service belongs to a special group of people who are called either priests, fathers, monks, pastors, or paid staff. According to this verse, that is fundamentally not true. Ministry is shared by the whole of the body, and it suffers massively if there are only a few given to the service and ministry and the rest do not participate. Now to clarify, once again, there will always be ministries within the structured programming of the church body. We have our junior high ministry, senior high ministry, you have elementary school ministry, you have Levin ministry, you have a women's ministry and a men's ministry, and, and we have Sunday morning ushering ministry and Sunday school teaching ministry and people who greet you, and that's another kind of ministry. We have a music ministry, and I mean, there's a lot of what you might think of as um, structured programming or programmed ministries, and they're important, absolutely essential. And, and Lord knows we need people to use their particular gift and calling in those areas. And if God is so leading you to teach in some way or do something, then by all means, I'm here. I want the gospel saturating my life, and I want to step on the gas and, 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 and do something with my life. That's good. But as I mentioned last week, I, I, I believe the bulk of, of ministry is outside the structured program of the church. And it's legitimate ministry. I mean, you take... Um, verse 11, the evangelist, that guy spent most of his time outside the church telling people about Jesus, outside what you might think of as the internal organized structured ministries. And there are opportunities on that plane that are infinite. Uh, I had a refreshing lunch, I think it was 
Wednesday or Tuesday this last week. It was almost like God providentially giving me something to help me think about my sermon. Uh, with, with two people who shared with me what they were doing. One of them has an evangelist heart. The other one has a desire to see people cared for. And they have teamed up and decided that they were going to go and visit people inside and outside of the church, or I'm sorry, who were shut into their homes or in hospitals, both believer and unbeliever. If a name came, they would together minister. One would do the more caring, and the other would do the more ministering, telling the testimony and telling the gospel. And they're sharing this with me. That wasn't initiated at this, in this church. They, they just decided to do it, just to go make it happen. There were no logos that were needed. There were no fancy labels for the ministry. They simply just did what they, they, they felt called to do, and they're continuing to do it. It's like, man, that's temple building. That's, that's temple building, and, and we ought to celebrate those things. Uh, this last Friday, there was a Christmas tree lighting, and, and uh, he did it last year, but it was even better this year. Watch Russ Rubing with his, with his hair hat on, pulling people on his tractor, you know, with the lights, and it was always packed with people. He just showed up to serve the city in a way that says, hey, we care, you know, alongside City Hope Ministry, just, just doing his part. Temple building. I was reflecting on this last week on all the different things that people have initiated and things people are involved in. And it's realized, man, the, the spectrum of temple building is so big, huge. Our, our Rwanda trip, we had a, a group of people just come back from Rwanda. And, um, and it struck me that the person who organized and spearheaded that, that mission endeavor didn't do so because the mission committee said, hey, will you go do this? Or because she's on paid staff, because she's not. She just has a passion for missions, a passion for overseas missions, is willing to organize it without even being told to do it by the church. And I think, apart from the youth ministry that goes to Mexico every year, she has done more overseas mission trips than anybody in the history of the church. Why? She's hard for it. She's a gift to the temple. We've got people in Mission Solano, people in Alpha uh, Pregnancy Resource Center, who are, who, are, who, are, who are ministering to people in the name of Jesus for the sake of building the temple. And you could add to that Levin, a number of others. Just They're there. Temple building all around. I believe that if we as a church took the call of verse 12 to heart, every single one. I really believe things would be unbelievably different, not only here, but in our city. All of us have to own this. All of us have to wear this hat. And if there is a lack of motive a lack of energy for the love of God, go back to the gospel. Because it means that somehow your heart has grown cold. I don't want you to walk away from this message going, man, I feel guilty, I better get involved. No, if, if you feel like, no, I'm, I'm not a temple builder. I'm not contributing to this one thing that is going to last through the epics of time. I want you simply to acknowledge my heart has grown cold to Jesus and his gospel has become something that is 
was cold in my heart. Lord, fan the flames again. Let me know Jesus in a way that just makes my heart unstoppable and let me serve. That's what I would implore you to do this morning. Because I, man, I'll tell you, Parkway, the, the call is, is, is to rise up. The call is to, to be temple builders where God has placed you using your unique gifts. And uh, boy, I tell you what, man, it's just, if every person who believed in Jesus took verse 12 to heart in our city, all the different churches, more power than you can ever imagine. Spirit indwelt people who love Jesus, who want to testify and love people. That would be amazing. So what I'd like you to do is, again, this is a message from Jesus to you, is to answer the question for yourself. Where are you at? Are, 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 you, are you bearing the mantle of this ministry, born by the power of the gospel in your own distinct and unique ways? And if not, then come back to that place where you recognize, I'm not doing those things because my heart has, has grown cold. Take a moment and just respond to the Spirit where you are. He's right here. He knows whether you're being honest. He knows what your life looks like. He knows if you're putting up a front. and Just let it down. Lord, this is the reality of my life. And then if you would like to be prayed for, and I'm hoping that Parkway will continue to be a place or become a place where we're not afraid of standing up and saying, I need someone to pray for me. There'll be people here and here over in the corners just there just to pray for you. Maybe it's about service. Maybe it's about, hey, I just want a heart for the gospel again. Maybe there's something going on in your life you just want strength for. We had fun last service praying for a number of people and uh, weren't afraid to come forward. Um, so if, if you would like that, that is a ministry. That's that's, that's building the temple, is both being prayed for and praying. Uh, will you do that as, as we sing our worship songs? But right now, just go ahead and, and answer the question personally for yourself um, as it relates to verse 12 and your part in the temple building 